podcast. This week, behind the scenes of a brand new digital exhibition experience at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. JECpodcast.com. Hello, hope you're well. Welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast podcast. Wayne Scott with you in the sunshine as we continue summer and a wonderful selection of Jaguar events here in the UK. What's happening where you are? Let us know. Get in touch with us. We always love to hear from our listeners. JECpodcast.com is the place to go to get in touch. You can use the contact form there. Lots of people getting in touch to tell us their stories about them and their Jaguars as well. So lots of nice interviews to come. And also lots of exciting interviews that we've been creating in partnership with the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. You might remember earlier in the year, we had some amazing interviews from people who had worked at Browns Lane, people who had been around Jaguar throughout its history. We've got some more on the way. And I spent a lovely week last week down at Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust interviewing all sorts of people about their time with Jaguar. And we'll be able to recreate those interviews for you here. So I'm not going to give any more than that away at this stage. Uh, Just keep listening in. JECpodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe for new episodes for free on there as well using your uh, podcast supplier of choice, Apple, Spotify, or, of course, Google Podcasts on Android phones. It's all on there for you, whichever you find easiest. Also, of course... We put the new podcasts out on the Friday Spotlight newsletter, which is distributed by the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Of course, uh, lots of good stuff. I'll give you one clue, because it's the 70th anniversary of the 1953 Le Mans win in the C-Type with Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt at the wheel that year. I did get to hold Duncan Hamilton's actual suitcase this week. Not only that, but inside was his helmet, his goggles... Andy's race boots. I can tell you all about it in a future episode. But for now, we're going behind the scenes, as I mentioned at the start, with the team that has put together this fantastic virtual exhibition experience at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. It's all charting the life of Sir William Lyons, of course, the founder of Jaguar. It's a real innovation, and we met the people behind it including Andrew Nahum, who is a curator of museums and a historian, and Peter Grimsdale, who's an author and a TV producer, plus a technology company called Painting the Cave, who created this digital space. It's a fascinating story, and Peter Grimsdale in particular, I think you'll really enjoy his sort of twists and insights into history as he's uncovered it and as he sees it. So it's really interesting to hear these guys chatting about something that was obviously a real passion project for them. You can, by the way, access this virtual experience very easily online at a new website, www.sirwilliamlyons.com. And we'll put the link in the description part of the podcast page as well. But for now, sit back, grab yourself a brew, and enjoy this interview recorded earlier this month at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust in one of the backstage rooms at the British Motor Museum with a very loud air conditioning unit. Enjoy. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. 
Well, on this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast, we're going behind the scenes with the people who created a brand new and exciting innovation here at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. And we're going to be finding out about this fantastic new virtual journey through the life and work of the founder of Jaguar, Sir William Lyons. Peter, I'll start with you. I mean, you've had a fantastic career in television, haven't you? Give us a background of of where you've been before this point? Oh, well, um, all over really, Channel 4 and BBC. Um, I made films, I researched films, I made films, and then I became a commissioner. Um, and I did a whole variety of different programs from Panoramas to Big Brother. Uh, but along the way, I did do quite a lot about cars and motoring history, which is kind of where my, where my interest uh, in what we're talking about today arose. But following on, um, I wrote a book a few years ago called High Performance, in which I looked at the period immediately after the war, which I regard as a kind of renaissance of the British motor industry, certainly in terms of innovation. Um, And the stars, really the four stars of that book were uh, Colin Chapman, Alec Isagonis, John Cooper, and William Lyons. And along the way, it occurred to me that there was more to be done about William Lyons. I think you have a kind of approach to history looking at your books that we have here uh, with the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast in that cars are really exciting. Uh, Cars are great when we're talking about performance and statistics and engineering and bits of metal. But actually, when they really come alive, when the history really becomes engaging is when you start to talk about the people and the lives that they touch, both in their creation and in their ownership, isn't it? That's that's where, where cars start to take on a life of their own. I'm interested in the way individuals' character manifests itself in what they and their designs. Um, so, if you you think about someone like Isagonis, you know the, the, the mini you know, is a, it comes entirely, almost fully formed from his notepads, and the the sort of willful eccentricities of the mini, the welded seams on the outside, and so forth, and in the astonishingly inspirational packaging, you know, is clearly out of Isigonis's brain and nowhere else, really. And the thing that is equally striking for me about William Lyons is that he his cars were willfully showy, to use a sort of downmarket word. Mm. They they made an impression always, right from the beginning, right from the first sidecars. And where does that come from? Because actually, when you look at pictures of him, he, he's a rather austere, yeah. double-breasted looking character. But as, as Andrew and I discovered when we went on this journey, you know, let's not forget, he comes from Blackpool. Yes. You know, and he started un- building things for motorbikes. And unlike, <laughs> unlike, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, a lot of people who came out of the Midlands. Blackpool was a show town where you never got anywhere unless you made an impression. Yeah. And you know, what we felt was that, you know, that's, that's where the DNA of what makes Jaguar special comes from. Because he was clearly a total control freak about the look 
you know, the look came first. The engineering obviously came somewhat later in his story. I think that's just so interesting. And he had an incredible talent for picking other talented people, didn't he? For spotting talent in others and building a team that was able to create those incredible masterpieces. Without that, that ability to find the talent in others, the E-Type could never have been, could it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the world divides into you know, individuals who want to surround themselves with the best possible people. And the guy who wants to be the smartest one in the room. And, and obviously he was just brilliant at talent spotting. Mm. You know, he made no secret of the fact he couldn't draw. He was not an engineer. He, he was a tinkerer, but he wasn't an aspirational engineer like someone like W.O. Bentley. Um, you know, he, he, he knew that if he was going to build cars that had technological excellence, to match his style. He'd had to go out and find find the best people to do that. And he gave them their head. They gave them an opportunity. One of the engineers he hired who came from Humber, Hillman and Humber. Yeah. So it was extraordinary, Haynes it was. How Haynes described how, you know, he he designed an independent front suspension. And his boss said, well, who, who else is doing this? And well, no one else is doing it. Well, oh, we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. You know, whereas when he got to work for Jaguar, yeah. it was like, like yeah. let's do twin cam. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a completely different, you know, let, yes, nobody's doing, you know, road cars, saloon cars with twin cams. Let's do them. Let's do it. Yeah. So he, he wanted to extend people. You mentioned Alec Izagonis there, who was a good friend of William Haynes's, and of course, there's no um, coincidence there that in putting torsion bars into the early Jaguar front suspensions, there's almost like a community of uh, of geniuses around that period in British motoring history, isn't there? And I think the thing is that William Lyons, you see, slightly falls between two stools when people are looking over the the history of whether it's the history of engineering or the history of design or the history of style. He, he doesn't quite get proper notice because he doesn't fit because he was a bit of all of them mm. and that's just completely unique mm. you know who else is the CEO of arguably one of the most successful car companies of its day who was also the chief stylist I and mean, there isn't really any other com- you can't find anybody else who, 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 who did that you have to look beyond the motor industry Mary Quant is the person I come up with. You know, like somebody who imposed a style on the on the landscape. You know, mm. who also created an industry out of nothing, a business out of nothing, and ran it and dominated it. Interesting as well that the E-Type became an icon of the 1960s, and yet it arrived before the 1960s knew they were the 1960s, didn't it really? Yeah, it was two years ahead. I, I looked at when, the, when, when they launched, you know, when, when, when Lions launched the E-Type, the Beatles that month had just had their first gig at the Cavern Club. Yeah. They were two years out. The miniskirt was two years away. It, it, it was the first out of the trap, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is important, Andrew, isn't it? Because, um, the importance of telling the story of these great engineers and these great vehicles is because 
it's inextricably linked to the social history of how we all developed as a nation, as a society, um, throughout that period in time, isn't it? Well, Peter's put this incredibly well in, in his book. Um, but I was reflecting about team building and Lions' talent at that. Um, Alex Moulton said to me when we were discussing Alec Isagonis, one man by himself can achieve absolutely zero. And of course, he was talking from experience on the mini project where he did the suspension. And Isagonis, again, surrounded himself with very wonderful people. Um, Jack Daniels, who put the cars together and was his prototype engineer. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a common theme there. A great project to be involved with here at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. Where did you come from into this project? Uh, obviously, your background is as a curator and a historian. Were you getting the facts right as they built it? <laughs> uh, well, I think there's enough people here to, to put us around if we hadn't. But um, no, I, I'm a long-term curator um, at the Royal Scottish Museum in Edinburgh, as it was then, at the Science Museum, and also at the Design Museum. Um, in 2017-18, I did an exhibition on Ferrari, which was meant to do exactly what we were talking about, to look at the culture and the people, not just the engineering, although we did that, and but also an exterior design. Uh, and that's when Peter got in touch and uh, um, had heard about that exhibition. And one of the things we did was to make a, um, a digital fly-through or walk-through of the, the Ferrari show. And it was a very beautiful thing and powerful so you could access the show remotely and look at the exhibits um, look at the labels look at the pictures so it led to the thought couldn't we do that without building the physical show and that's the germ of the idea to make a digital exhibition and it's wonderful because here whilst there's a great hangar full of amazing vehicles there is no actual museum experience as such and you've managed to bring that to the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust but actually in a way that can be accessed by anyone at any time and uh, and that's a really special way of telling the story isn't it we th we think it's a prototype we um, we weren't aware of any any predecessors and we didn't have a model to follow so it was a, a voyage of exploration with Phil and for all of us but we also thought that it would be a model for other other um, virtual museum adventures um, and we hoped it would lead to more well, of course, all of this needed technology uh, to make it happen. And uh, what you do is you turn to a technology company with a brilliant name, Painting the Cave. <laughs> Phil, where does the name come from? Um, well, it's, uh, it's a name that uh, I came up with, obviously, at the very beginning, thinking what we were going to be doing. And um, it really comes from visual storytelling. So whenever you're looking at... Um, the history of visual storytelling, the starting point really is cave painting. Mm. So we're not really doing anything different today than we were doing back then. Um, we're trying to create en enduring stories that you, you can read and that uh, today the visual aspects of cave painting we can still read even though it's a very different culture and, uh, and society and world. And it's that idea of the, the visual impact of something and that visual impact enduring that, uh, that kind of led to the name. Um, we still do the same today, it's just that our, our cave is probably virtual and digital. And I happen to know that there were a number of different technology solutions put forward for this virtual exhibition. 
why was it that yours came forward do you think was it was it something special that you understood about the subject matter I think, well, it was a, a great uh, opportunity, uh, obviously, with Andrew and Peter. Um, we have a broadcast uh, expert, we have a historian and a, uh, a curator of a museum. And that kind of combination of talent was then able to really inform what was needed and what we needed to do. I think from the outset, when we were first looking at it, the easy option with this sort of thing would have been to just do a website gallery or just do a film. Um, but we wanted to kind of take on the challenge that that, uh, that these guys had kind of really set to in their mind of creating something that was a first-person virtual experience um, and really to do it in a way that hadn't been done necessarily before for something like this. Uh, I mean, as Andrew said, with the Ferrari exhibition, most of the digital experiences that you would have seen so far uh, are digitized walkthroughs of physical spaces. So you basically take a camera and you walk through a physical space, but you've got to build it first. So the idea of building something completely virtually without having the physical thing to draw on um, was uh, was really the challenge that was set, and to try and make that into a an engaging first-person experience that you would uh, you would feel as if you were walking through a 3D space. It's incredibly simple to use, and it's incredibly simple to navigate your way around. And when you're there, it, it feels like a simple environment. But I know that that ultimately means it was complex behind the scenes, because that's what you have to do to make it feel easy, don't you? So, you know, how did you how did you manage to create that very natural feeling environment as you move your way through? Um, well, there was an awful lot of uh, uh, development, as, as you said, and, and trial and error in terms of the navigation and how we make that work. And um, obviously, that was us working together from our different viewpoints of to say, how does this feel natural? How does this feel like something that we want it to, to, to have a, uh, a, a natural sense of movement as you're going through? And it doesn't sort of... It doesn't make you feel in any way uh, disorientated or disjointed. So um, that took a while. That probably took the longest part of the development was to understand how we'd navigate, how we'd move through the space once we'd built it. But the space itself, because we're in a virtual world, it's we have that great advantage of being able to build everything inside out. So we're not restricted by a physical building or, or getting something fitted within a room uh, and then trying to work a path around that room we can work out the path we want to take and then build the room to suit it. So that was the great advantage that we had, is that we, we came to it almost sort of inside out. Mm. I love the fact that even simple things like looking at images and artefacts, they automatically scale the moment you look at them. There is nothing more annoying than having to zoom in and out on things. And it's little things like that that make it have that natural feel, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And I mean, we, we looked uh, um, uh, at various options for how you might... Uh, approach the, uh, a wall or a, you know an exhibition position what you might view when you saw that how you might move uh, to, to, to be able to view it what uh, what restriction of movement we would give you and ultimately a lot of what we were doing came down to restricting that movement so that everything was presented to you first and that you didn't have to try to find the right position to read something on or anything else that it it came to you sort of uh, uh, presented and 
every time you moved, you moved to the optimum viewing position for what you were looking at. Um, and that did take a lot of, uh, uh, of trial error and development time to, to get that right. But uh, yeah, that was critically important. And that was something that Andrew and Peter really kind of helped us to, to understand and to realize what, what would that be and how would that work. I think it's very interesting. I mean, well, Bill, the way as Phil has put it, it, and I hadn't reflected on it until now, um, that we had that a dialogue with an expert in, in the digital world, if you like, um, with Peter and his f television and film experience, and my experience in the kind of real world of, of galleries where you progress and walk and look, um, and that association is kind of novel in this world and so I think um, we're very happy with the way it turned out. It was, no, that, it, absolutely. It was a great dialogue and that's what did it. Absolutely because there was no roadmap for this you know I mean you know creating a museum creating a gallery well there are certain things that you know creating a TV program there are certain things you know but this was this was really neat. There was nothing that we could use as a template. Mm -hmm. You know, it was so. And I think the, the thing that was really striking, though, was that we had this idea originally as a physical exhibition. And then, you know, the idea evolved into, well, could we do it? And could we do it online? And we talked to a, some developers who just like, they just, you know, Phil just got it from the beginning. He just kind of intuitively seemed to get exactly what we wanted to do, which was a great start. Yeah, it was easy to understand what the objective was. I think the difficult thing then after was well, how do we do that in a way that makes it feel natural? And I mean, we did try various platforms and, and looked at various bits of technology. I mean, the, the solution really came to us in, um, in gaming technology in the end because there's been an awful lot of progress in recent years. Anyone who plays games or who has children who plays games will understand how quickly they've moved on and how sophisticated they are now. And that first person experience kind of comes from that gaming technology. That's what sort of underpins what we've done in that sense is to be able to adapt to that sort of, uh, uh, that, that sort of technology and that world building to, uh, to create something that, uh, that works in an exhibition format. But there is a kind of critical addition that we only discovered through really trial and error which is that you know on in a game you can go anywhere with the battlefield or wherever you are down left right but what we needed to do was whenever you moved was to land somewhere so there had to be some means whereby when you progressed you didn't just go off into some bit of skirting board you know sure, you yeah. you landed on the next thing and that was the i mean brilliantly you know Phil pulled that off, you know, made that work. Um, I think we were, uh, or I was, a little cavalier. We thought, well, it's digital, you know, um, they, they can do, surely we can do anything. Um, and we didn't realize how deeply you had, or Phil had to go into the programming to make it work. But as Peter put it, you know, the, the, we wanted to give the illusion or the impression that you were a free traveller in the space, but of course you can't be free because otherwise you end up wedged under the gearbox of an Austin 7. <laughs> There's worse places to end up, let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, on that subject, we talked about our professional background, but probably what was also important is we're you know, being petrol heads too. I mean, I spent a lot of my life underneath engines with 
oil dripping in my eye and um, as, alongside being a, a curator and, and, and I know Peter's done the same thing with um, Porsches and Alphas and so I, th- I think you've got to have the sense of, of the hardware and to love it as well it's true Peter isn't it you do have to have the the illness as I call it to, okay. in order to get really get this completely I mean all, all through my childhood I mean I was a fanatical collector of, of very small cars um, but also I, I wanted to be a car designer I drew cars you know to drove my parents crazy can't you draw something else you know <laughs> I just drew cars I wanted to be a car designer well I happen to know as well that whether it was at school or college, I'm not sure you'll tell me, but you, you did a dissertation on the 1927 Le Mans, didn't you? This is not the, the actions of a normal child, is it, Peter? No, no I, wrote a, I wrote a school essay, um, <laughs> which I still have, when I was about 12. And I did, a, I did also did, for my O-level English uh, language, uh, amazingly, the Southern Exam Board, um, basically you could, you could do a, um, a project submit a project so I compared Bugatti Porsche and Ledvinka for mine I got right I got 71% I was dead chuffed with that (laughs) you should be an author one day as they said well there you go (laughs) how did it take you so long to get round to writing two books about cars because 2019 I think the first came out yeah well so what happened basically was I um, I started the my diversion. I mean, I had a fantastic time in telly. A really, really great, great life in television. Uh, but it, there was a point about twenty years ago where I thought, you know, maybe I maybe I've done it. You know, what else is there? And I'd always wanted to write. So I thought I'd, I thought I I so I started. I wrote basically long story short. I wrote a thriller, um, which did all right, perfect night. And then I did another one. And my best mate from my school days, who was my best car mate as well, he is a sculptor who lives in Australia, and he, he, he's not interested in my thrillers. He said, when are you going to write a book about cars? If you can write, when are you going to write a book about cars? I said, I just don't know. When I have an idea, you know, because I don't want to just, like, there are people who've been writing wonderful books about cars all their lives, you know, people like Doug Nye or whatever. I mean, you can sort of, well, how could I? But I think what, I'd done a lot of social history uh, uh, TV and one of the first projects I'd worked on uh, in the early 80s at BBC was an incredible series called All Our Working Lives it was an 11 part history of British industry and I managed to get onto that uh, onto the programme that was about the car industry as a researcher and although I thought I knew about cars I didn't really know anything about the the industry or the you know how they were built and you know the union relations all that kind of thing I learned all about that through that show it was so interesting and of course making this show in the early 80s it was doom and gloom all about the decline and fall <laughs> and, and, and uh, anyway but you know it was a good show it was very very interesting I learned a whole lot that I didn't know and then I did a film for a series did a series about Britain just after the war and Part of that was the, you know, the whole export or die program and cars having to be ex- exported, you know, like, yeah. at, you know, from day one. Yeah. America being the yeah, big market, yeah. yeah. And it was just like, oh, hang on, in 1945, Britain exported handfuls of cars before the war to the colonies, you know. And along comes this government who says, you know, we're in such trouble that we're going to have to, you're going to have to export 75% of your output, otherwise we won't give you the steel. 
Oh, well, that was, you know, instead of you know, chucking Austin Devons at the US market. You know. And, um, but hang on, by 1950, we were exporting more cars than anybody else in the world. Um, isn't this a success story? Yeah. Not only that, where's this whole sports car craze come from? You know, I knew enough to know that one thing that uh, Austin and Morrison Co. did not want to do before the Second World War was build sports cars. Waste of time, waste of money. Look at all those people who went bust. Look what happened to Bentley. You know, all those other companies struggling along, Lagonda, you name it. No money in sports cars. But what happens is this extraordinary moment in New, in, in New Orleans when Shell Cavalli happens on an MGTF and he's never even seen a sports car before. He doesn't know. What he looks at, what he sees when he sees the MGTC is a four-wheel motorcycle. But he also sees something that he knows he could sell in California, which is made for the open sports car. And that's the beginning of a revolution. And America falls in love with a sports car, discovers sports car racing. The British motor industry discovers it can make money out of sports cars. In fact, you know, sticking a fairly ordinary engine you know, in a fairly slim body, fewer parts, as it yeah, were, yeah. than, you know, what's not to lose? Yeah. And, and so suddenly, Britain's sitting on a whole, there's a whole new revenue stream for the industry. Yeah. And if you think, you know, looking from now, you know, if you look at it you know, from the end of the 60s, which is where my book, my book end, ends, is that whole, the whole world, the whole industry has changed in a wonderful way. So forget all the doom and gloom of the decline and fall of the industry. An incredible thing happened. And also where a lot of people were given their head. You know, like Colin Chapman, Isagonis, make the whole car. You know, put the engine behind, John Cooper, put the engine behind the driver. Let's see what happens. It, it released a whole lot of... And the only thing I can compare that with is rock and roll, is, you know, is, is the music revolution that happened in, in Britain. Is it a load of people going, you know what, I'm going to do exactly what I want, what I think, and no one's going to stop me. Yeah, yeah I suppose the other era that could be compared to it is the kind of dot-com boom era of young people making wacky websites in their garages. Yes, you in know. a way, except when you think about people like Isigonis and Lyons, they weren't, they weren't new boys. Cooper and Chapman were definitely, you know, and, and I mean, Chapman's such a rebel, you know. I mean, he is, he is very much like in, in, in that mold. Now I think about it, you're, you're right, you're right. But Lyons, Lyons is special because he's already a bit of a grandee, mm. you know. I mean, it, it, make no mistake, Jaguar is a vulnerable company in the late 40s. He nearly doesn't get the steel ration. He nearly doesn't qualify. And if he didn't get that steel ration, it would have been the end of the company. It always seems to be a story against all the odds, doesn't it, with Jaguar? And, you know, you mentioned the motorsport mm. boom mm. Um, that happened in Europe a lot mm. sooner than it happened here because governments were funding 
teams to go racing. You know, the Italian teams, the German teams were getting government funding. I know you mentioned MG. I really annoyed Cecil Kimber at the time during the 1930s, you know. Um, And yet he still managed to go racing. He still managed to make vehicles like the MGK3 90 years ago that that did what they did. And Jaguar are the same. You know, even despite the fact that in 1940 it looked really grim for the prospects of us winning the war, what they were doing was sat by candlelight designing the XK engine, you know, planning for the future against all the odds. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think, um, I mean, there are, I think you made the comparison, Andrew, with with Musk, uh, which is comparing lions to Musk in a way, which is a a bit of a kind of challenging one, but in a way is absolutely right, because what what I think is striking about lions is never compromised. No matter what was going on, he was still had had the vision. Oh, you know, we're just coming through the war. We're going to be broke. I know. I'll build a hundred mile an hour luxury car. Yes. With a twin cam engine. Yeah. I mean, that's like the only other comparison of that is Enzo Ferrari going. Hmm. We've just lost the war. I think I'll build a V12 mm. sports car, racing car. You know, um, is that sense of I'm I'm not looking at what's happening right now I'm looking at beyond where I want to be and I'm not going to compromise I'm not going to compromise my designs and yet Andrew unlike Enzo Ferrari and and perhaps Elon Musk to a certain degree you see bits of Sir William Lyons' life where he has real compassion and care for the people that work for him um, like buying William Haynes' his, his house because he didn't have any money when he joined the company. Moments like that of real, you know, of a really soft, kind-hearted man, which is quite unusual considering what he'd achieved in, in industry. It's, yes, in a way that's an, that's an old kind of, of um, ph- philanthropist and industrialist. You know, perhaps we don't tend to think coexisted um, but there were quite a few people like that in British industry um, with an enlightened view um, I would like to just go back to what Peter was saying about that, that wartime innovation as well um, Jaguar wasn't alone in thinking what would happen after the war, you know, from maybe 43 on and, and scheming a new engine. You know, Vincent Motorcycles and Stevenage did exactly the same thing. And Isagonis had really created or schemed the Morris Minor before the end of the war. And they modelled it in brass, which no one had ever done before. Um, and I actually seen the model in the hands of Jack Daniels. And I said, did you often make things in brass? And he said, I never knew it to be done before. But I suppose it was whatever would work at the time so just looking at those people you could see that there was a tremendous urge as in Italy to get back to civil industry and creation and and invent something marvellous and new I guess we should mention at this point John Black as well because he was another you know whilst everyone was worrying about the war effort his standard motor company factory were making mosquitoes and he was buying the Triumph brand for not much money with the vision of having a sporting brand later on after the war probably quite annoyed that William Lyons has decided to make his own engines and chassis from that point onwards they had an oddly symbiotic relationship didn't they Lyons and Black because you know basically they, they Standard built the first bits that underpinned the first SS and Jaguars, and gradually, you know, as, as Lyons got bought more and more the kit off him, as it were. Um, and yet, Black was slightly kind of, you know, irritated by by 
Lyons is right, and it was a sort of interesting relationship there. Mm. I mean, I think Black is a well, that's a whole other story, isn't it? But he, you know, he is somebody who slightly I mean, he, he he was a great sort of cheerleader and you know very very sort of good to his staff and, and all that but he became a kind of difficult later on you know as as the business kind of changed and got harder lions kind of rose above all that but going back to that thing about so kindness i think what 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 he i mean i think he could be quite he was, obviously you need to be quite ruthless in order to keep business like that going but i think one of the things he did which i think is very unusual and actually w bentley also did this was championing people seeing potentially people and championing them and i think one of the things that's most interesting is alice fenton Alice Fenton's story. So she, she, as a teenager, goes to work for Lyons' parents' music shop and she plays the piano in the window. And um, because she, by, that's her idea, to try and kind of encourage customers in. And, and William Lyons' mother says, you know, this woman's, she's really got something. I think she's wasted the shop. I think she should come and work for you. So she comes to work for Lyons as, her, as his secretary. But, you know, within five years, she's practically managing the whole sales side. Extraordinary. Because he sees her potential right. So by 1950s, she's the first woman ever to sit on a, on a board, ever to be a director of, or certainly of a British motor company, probably any, any motor company in the world. And possibly there's no other comparison with any other bit of British industry either. I mean, real travel, it never crossed his mind that, oh, you can't do this, you're a woman. It, Lyons didn't think like that. He really was a, he was a very modern thinker in lots of ways. It just gives you a sample of the depth of story that sits behind uh, Sir William Lyons here and, and, and the amazing stories that you, and, and almost rabbit holes you can go down telling them as well. So coming back to the technology, how do you distill all of these stories and amazing, you know, uh, little tales of little collections of stories into a journey through a virtual platform it, it's got to be a challenge well it, it all comes down to finding the narrative um, and as, as Peter has said you know just like you know uh, writing the book um, it's understanding where's your starting point what's the, the through narrative that you're wanting to take and then with this exhibition in particular it, it was paramount from day one that this was a exhibition about Sir William Lyons and not necessarily about Jaguar so it's about the man and the people that he uh, brought in and, uh, and the talent that he curated, not necessarily the cars themselves. Um, they are an output, they're a product, they are you know, obviously what he creates and that's his legacy. But um, the, the story that we wanted to tell through the exhibition was very much the lion's story and, and understand his own development and bring in some of uh, uh, those aspects of, uh, of the story that perhaps people haven't heard about him before. Of course, you know, cars are far more tangible, a bigger challenge in a way to put them across in the virtual world, whereas someone's life story, you know, emotional stories along the way, getting to know someone is perfectly possible in the virtual world, almost better actually in many ways. Yeah, and I think what was fascinating was um, going through the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust archive and finding some of the images and assets that could help tell that story um, because many of those are images and uh, that you know 
haven't been seen before necessarily, certainly not been publicly displayed, um, and uh, and uh, often very personal images, um, and uh, uh, and they really help to bring everything to life. Um, I mean, I think. The great sort of thing about being in the virtual world, of course, is that, again, you're not limited by space or um, the practicalities of the physical world. So you can have as many elements into your story as possible. We were able to bring um, film and animation uh, uh, together with the archive images to help to bring some of that to life. Um, but, you know, there are lots of small stories within the development of things, you know, like the leaper and, and some of the elements of uh, of, of Jaguar that uh, that don't necessarily follow the history, the known history of some of the cars, um, and and those were the interesting things to try to bring to life and understand, you know, how can we illustrate this? What do we have to, to show this? And uh, and being in a virtual world is uh, is the greatest place for that because we're kind of only limited by imagination of how we can show something. Well, what this could do that a book can't do was engage with the bit that I find most interesting about Lyons is the way he, he, he worked in a way like a sculptor with a team around him. You know, see, he was saying, like, I want it this shape, I want it that shape. He didn't do models, didn't do drawings. To start, it's almost like throwing the clay on the wheel. Okay, let's build an armature. You know, we'll have the wheels there, and we'll build, right, and this is what we want. Working that way, no, nobody else worked that way. Now, I can describe that as best I can in the book, but actually, when you've got, when you're in the, when you're in the, in the, in our gallery, you know, because of what Phil can do, it's like showing, like you can, you can go all round and round the sidecar, move the sidecar around, look at it up, down, and beside that, we've got you know, pictures of the prototypes and the evolution of the XJ6. Those. You know, how it came about, sitting outside Wappenbury Hall, you know, looking at it and thinking, yeah, you've got a way to go there. But you can see how it evolves. You can see how the XJ6 evolves out of styling cues from the E-Type. Um, that's, that's just, a, you know, with some narrative alongside to help explain what people are looking at. Then you get something really, really satisfying there to try and kind of get over this idea that he had this unique vision and from a practical behavioral point of view you're, you're going to see visitors to this virtual museum interacting with uh, artifacts like that in a way they actually wouldn't ever do in a physical museum in a way they probably wouldn't spend the time to do that would they no absolutely i mean it, and in many ways you wouldn't be allowed to do that and often yeah, so sure. i mean one of the th the things that I said to, to Matthew very early on was that um, uh, for for what we could do um, in a virtual world, you, you know, you could sit in uh, an XK120. Now, um, the opportunity to do that probably doesn't exist for many people in uh, in the physical world. And if you're coming to a, an exhibition um, that might include an XK120, the chances of you all being able to sit in it are quite remote. So it was that sort of... Um, uh, capability that we could bring that I think uh, really sort of lit the fuse for what we were trying to do um, and how we were going to go about it was to be able to give people that sense of yes you, you can physically 
um, uh, see these things but uh, in our world you can interact with them you can move around them and uh, and yet yeah, you can even kind of get behind the wheel of uh, an Austin 7 or an SS1 if you want to. And the skill that you've put into this, Phil, clearly is that you were able to do that without thinking about the tech, without it becoming obtrusive, even though you're doing something really clever. Yeah, again, it's about serving things to people. And uh, as we went along, it was it was a lot of what we were we were trying to do was understand how we made things as simple as possible and how we just made things intuitive so you know you click on an arrow and you go in a certain direction um, that's an intuitive thing to do but it's quite a complex thing to make work um, and just knowing uh, how people are going to interact with things what are they looking for what kind of uh, icons and images do we understand um, and what do they mean so you know uh, we all now from YouTube and other places we understand that if you have a little arrow on top of something that probably means it's a film and you can play it so you click on it um, and it's just that kind of intuition that you try to build in and give people the chance to uh, uh, to to get a sense um, of the fact that they have freedom of choice and movement within the space even though um, we've uh, we've very carefully curated what that journey is going to be. Sure, sure, yeah, it's not an experience where you just sit back and watch. You have to make your way through. This this is part of the the uh, the requirement really for what we, w what we needed to do with this exhibition. You know, if you spend the time to walk through this exhibition at a normal sort of speed that you would walk through a physical space it will take you somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes to complete the entire journey now that's not something you normally do on a website mm. you know the idea of spending half an hour on a website is yes. is almost unheard of so to create that sort of sense of engagement and that ongoing uh, sense of, uh, of, of wanting to follow the story meant that we had to kind of keep people engaged we had to give people things to do um, so there were things that you had to, to be able to interact with as well as just being able to see because if you want to watch something for half an hour um, online that's quite a commitment to just sort of sit there and watch something and very very quickly you'd find a lot of people were abandoning that and, and moving off it which is why very early on we decided that we needed something more than a film or a, a passive gallery we needed something that you physically uh, had the experience of moving through. And Peter, I guess this is where your experience from film and TV comes in because you've got to ensure that the technology is delivering the story like you would deliver a TV programme. There's a, an introduction, a hook, a reason to keep watching, a reason to keep progressing. But also that the technology mustn't get in the way. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's, it's one that you know, computer games work for people who are computer savvy. You know, you, 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 there's a certain assumption that, you know, when you sit down to do Battlefield or whatever, or Medal of Honor, you know how to make it work. But we needed to create something for people who weren't familiar with that. In fact, people who were probably very unfamiliar. And that, was, that in itself, you know, was, it was a challenge. And I, I must say it was a huge relief, you know, when we launched was to discover people coming back and saying, oh yeah, it was really good. And you think, oh, well, you're not exactly a computery person, are you? <laughs> That's great news. I mean, that really is good news. 
um, that was the best. That was the best thing, really. That they found that they could go in there and make it work, which meant that all the all that hard work about the, the I hate the word signage, but you know the the, the navigation, you know that. That that's that seemed to work because in a way you you know with a tele program you know there's a lot of you know marrying up of things that do and don't work along the way and but in the end it's got to be it's just to go go past you you know in a way you don't you don't start thinking about what's going on here technology technologically you want to be immersed in, in the thing and I think that seems to that seems to work. It's one of the very few things that I've been developing that I could actually test on my mum and dad as a genuine oh, really? uh, target customer. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, was quite, that's that was quite nice. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, nice yeah, yeah. yeah, fantastic. Well, yeah. And I, and I guess, Andrew, this is, from a, looking at this from a, a, a traditional museum perspective, this is an exciting, complementary addition to the normal physical museum, isn't it? I think it's a great new technique, and what we didn't want to do was to create a website. In a way, by modeling a three-dimensional experience, even though it's simulated, it enable us to layer the information so you talked about rabbit holes we, we had the, the rabbit holes are there um, and you can go down them and come back out so it produces a much richer experience than, than the average website and that's why we hope it retains attention and takes you through the story and i think genuinely it will drive more people to leave the virtual world and come and have a look at the cars that were the output of the story of that great man Funnily enough, a, a lot of museums worried and still tend to worry that um, th their digital output may take away from from physical visits. The, the, the reverse turns out to be true. You know, pe people can access it from a long way away, and they think, w "When I get to Gaiden, I must see that car." And they understand more about what they're seeing because they've they've seen it online. Um, it's great. Um, of course, you will now want to go and explore the virtual museum uh, for the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. You can get the links on the podcast description page uh, with this episode, and uh, of course, find it from the Jaguar Daimler Heritage site as well. So, uh, get on there, have a look, have a look round, and learn about the great man Sir William Lyons that gave us Jaguar, of course, and proving the point I made, I think, at the very beginning of this conversation that cars are great, but it's the people that make them. So, uh, Andrew, Philip and Peter, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.